Hey folks, I'm Dr. Jamar Tisby and welcome to the next installment of Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade in Christian Higher Ed. Why Those Meddling Kids? Well, you remember the Scooby-Doo cartoons, right? They would have these young people who were solving crimes and then at the end of the episode, they would literally unmask the villain, unmask the culprit who would inevitably say, and I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Well, they're at it again. This time, college students at Christian colleges and universities are meddling in the racial status quo. They want to see racial progress. They want to see racial justice. And they have the boldness, the audacity, the unmitigated gall to think that their colleges and universities should help them in that effort. So they're meddling in a good way, as John Lewis would say, good trouble. And so that's what we called the series. And I'm so excited for you to meet our next guest, the Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, welcome to Those Meddling Kids. I'm so glad to be here. What a fantastic series this is. Come on, keep up with <laughs> the meddling. It's getting even better with you here. Y'all, so I cannot tell you how excited I am to hear from Reverend Dr. Lewis. Uh, for folks who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your educational and professional background as well as your ministry now. Uh, thank you so much, Jamar. Again, thank you for having me. Um, I hope it's okay for us to do first names with each other. Is that all right? Let's do it. Jackie. Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Uh, I am uh, the oldest kid in a family of five. Um, and I'm talking about my parents who were raised in Mississippi. Let me just start mm. there as a part of my story. My dad was raised in Meridian, Mississippi. My yeah. mom was raised in Roeville, Mississippi. Wow. In fact, she sang in the choir with Fannie Lou Hamer. And yes, she did. What? Yes, she did. And my uncle George, her uncle, my great uncle, was a trustee at the church where Fannie Lou Hamer was discovered by SNCC and got called to ministry. So right outside that church, his name is etched etched forever, right, in metal uh, on the outside door. I've been uh, my there. Dad, have you been there? <laughs> I've that been crazy? there, absolutely. I, I'm having an allergy, so forgive me, young people. It's going to go ahead and scratch that allergy so we know what's going on. Um, so I've, I have to say... You know, with dad being raised in Meridian, where our three young civil rights workers were killed, I went on a journey last summer to my roots and looking at Black folks' religion. And my dad's family is buried in the same plot as James Cheney, a family plot mm. in Oklahoma City, Mississippi. So they're, they're connected, right? Wow. I'm connected to Fannie Lou Hamer. I'm connected to James Cheney. And um, when Dr. King was killed, I was almost nine years old. Okay. And I was living in Chicago with my parents because I was only nine. And I was traumatized, catalyzed mm. into this movement, feeling right. like I was, I was supposed to pick up his mantle and be a drum major for peace. That, that was yeah. my sense. So I did a bunch of stuff. Cesar Chavez organizing, you know, um, against birth effects for economic justice, the Heifer Project. I mean, as a little kid mm. in church, our parents in encouraged us that justice was a part of our life of faith. Mm. It took me from the time I was eight and a half, feeling that call to ministry, to 30, to finally go to seminary. In the meantime, I did corporate stuff for East Dakota Company and was a big sister and director choirs at, at 
college and all the stuff, living my faith out loud in those ways you do young people when you're young, you'd be like, mm, I might not go to church today, but I'm going to find me some gospel music to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now uh, having said yes to this calling, graduated from Princeton Seminary um, in 1992, that you know, uh, was a really interesting time of gay rights and black rights. And then I got a PhD from Drew in psych and religion studying racial identity development. Mm. I, I never lost that question. Why did a man like King get killed in a country that said it was a democracy? Why mm. was him doing revolutionary love, fierce love, a call to murder him? You know, Why is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning still the most segregated hour yes. in America? Yes. And Jamar, that, you know, they say our PhDs are autobiographical often, but that was yes. my research question. How, why does the church, the church say welcome and really mean leave part of you out the door and really right. mean we're going to grow our churches by being segregated? Why? And what can I do about it? Um, took me to middle church to study this white, middle-aged man from middle America hosting a multiracial church, really white with some black folks and Hispanic folks, but still mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. all white. And how how do we how do we grow multiracial communities was my uh, research question, which okay. led me to study critical race theory and racial identity development and all kinds of cool things. So, uh, middle church is my jam. Middle church is my multiracial, multicultural, multi all the things, queer friendly, woman led experiment about multiracial life in America. And 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 you're a national voice international voice really on this. So again, honored by your presence. And I just recently learned more about your academic background, studying racial identity development, which I'm huge on. So I read um, Beverly Tatum's book, yes. uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Down in college? And it gave me a language and a framework right. uh, to understand what was happening because I had come from a, 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 a high school environment where half of the students were Latinos and Latinas, where 25% mm -hmm. of us were, it was just, it was everybody everywhere. And then I went to an undergrad experience where black Americans were 3% of the undergrad. Wow. And I was like, what is this? What's happening? And right. so uh, this is a sidebar, but, but real quickly, if I'm in that 18 to 22 year old stage of life yes. and yeah. I'm black, where, how, how, what do I need to know about my mm -hmm. identity as it's developing yeah. racially? Yeah, thank you so much. That's such a great question. I want to tell the young people who are listening, anybody who's listening, a couple of people to look up. Yes, Beverly Tatum, read her book. Why do all the kids sit together uh, in the in the cafeteria? A couple of other books of hers, but Robert Carter is a black psychologist who studied a white psychologist named uh, Janet Parham. And they were kind of tracking the identity development work of Eric Erickson, which is a mm. staged development, right? Um, you're, you're in this place and you're in this place and eight stages letter, <laughs> Eric Erickson says, you're a human, you know? You're actualized, so, yes. <laughs> here you are. And, and not only them, but also some uh, Asian theorists. Mm. Um, and you can find these friends on at Racial Equity Institute to see kind of a comparison of these racial identity theories. But they sort of start with 
I'm just an innocent. I'm going to use Jackie's words. I'm an innocent. I don't know there's a thing called race. Mm. Okay. And then second stage is I'm raced. Something happens. My own story, Jamar, is I'm five and I'm called the N-word for the first time. Oh, goodness. Five years old. Right? You're raced. And a lot of the theories, the third stage is kind of a deep, deep um, dive into your own racial identity. So I became, can I say, blackity black, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? Mm -hmm. You go through the phase of I'm blackity black. I'm not trying to deal with white people. I got a big afro. I'm in Gawa. I'm in search of my own self, my own people. And the fourth stage is often something like integration um, or, or uh, cohesion. Um, I'm going to go Malcolm X. He's blackity black. And then he realizes actually um, that he is, he is something more than he is also a human. He is also mm-hmm. in relationship to these Muslims across the globe, no matter mm-hmm. what their skin tone, right? And then the fifth stage is something like actualization, uh, which is to say I'm deeply black. And I'm also owning my humanness and able to work across race. Now, that's that's not exactly how the different theorists call it, but that's sort of the trajectory. Yes. Right? You, you know, and the college age kids are sort of in that fourth stage where they're kind of scanning. Um, this is in the stage where they're like, all right, I've I've been I've been innocent and then I've been raced, and then I maybe retreated into my own folks. A lot of young white students go through a kind of deeply white time where they mm. think to themselves, I have to be whiter to belong mm. to my own people or, or more Asian to belong to my own people, right? The fourth is like looking up and out and saying, well, wait a minute, there's a whole human community out here. How do I relate to it? And hopefully, um, as, as kind of adults, we're saying, I love myself. I love my ethnic self. And I'm part of a human community, and I want everyone to be able to love their ethnic selves and be a part of a, a human family. Ubuntu is what you and I would say about that. Right. I am who I am because you are who you are, and we recognize that that's about everybody thriving and surviving in a womanist way. Not only does that make sense, that's one of the best explanations of racial <laughs> identity development I've ever heard. Thank huh. you so much for breaking it down. Mm-hmm. I wanted college students to hear that, to know that you're – you're you're in a stage you're you're yes. developing right. and it's that's helpful right. to have language around that that's right and as part of that you your your studies um you've also looked into critical race theory yes i have yes I and have. so there's so much misinformation yeah. about out there right. it's hard to even call it critical race theory because what they're calling crt is not actually crt what do you think is important for folks to know about critical race theory Thank you so much for that. And, and you know, I've been saying, how about critical race truth? <laughs> you know, <laughs> not, not critical, critical, critical race facts, you know, is what I'm thinking. I, th- I think I want to, let me just sit, make a bridge between that stage, racial stage development to the theory talk by saying my own personal research around race and racial identity development went to a narrative place. So, mm-hmm. so I studied people like Roy Scharf, Roy Schaefer. Um, I studied Derek Bell in regards to that. Um, and, uh, and this idea that it isn't so much about stages for me, but it's about the stories that shape our identity. So mm-hmm. in that regard, race is a story. Race is one of the stories that shapes our identity, a theory. That's what I want to do with that. Mm-hmm. Every theory is a story. Right, every theory is a story. Um, economic theory is a story. 
you know, racial identity is a story. Theology is a story. These stories have fat gender is a story, right? Mm. Class is a story. So all of these stories, I think, shape our ultimate identity. So I would say to the younger people listening, like, here's the stories that have shaped you so far. Um, your mom and dad's background story, whatever that is. Child, when you were little, you were always curious, right? So your family has a story about you and a story mm. about their legacy and history. That shapes you. Um, the story of your faith, denomination, this is what it means to be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew, Reformed or conservative, Baptist or Methodist, mm. those faith stories shape you. What about gender? That's a story that shapes you. Girls do, boys do. Um, or if you're lucky in a family, less gendered, but something. The cultural stories, what y'all are watching on TV, what you're consuming in the radio, where, what, the kind of music you jump into. All of those messages are stories that shape you. And race in America is a story that shapes you. A story born of papal bulls take you behind across the world and find a land and you know, inhabit it, and you can have it if it's yours, transform the heathens, go to Africa, grab some black people off the shore, right? All of those stories, um, Irish in, in Ireland, poor, not Catholic, all of those stories shape us. And the story of race in America as a particular story formed by the sort of Catholic, go get it, doctrine of discovery, shaped by Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, in mm. which he opined just how stupid and unfeeling the black people are, that shapes it. Pseudo-race science, right, Tamara, shapes it. What size is your skull shapes it. The Nazis' idea of what's beautiful and amazing. All of these stories are in us, Tamara. They're in us. Mm. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois would say maybe black people have a particular gift because of these stories. Tunis. I have... Oh, an ability to feel my blackness, but also I understand the white gaze on you, yeah. those stories. So, so let's talk about critical race theory. Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, but Derek was my way in, mm -hmm. that there's something permanent about the story of race in America, he said. And that permanence, that permanence of the racism story needs to be a lens through which we look at the legal system is where he was. Um, I love to show people books because sometimes it's easier. Yes. But this, this was one of my Bibles when I was in grad school. Faces in the bottom of the well. I read it so many times. It's yellow and ugly and messed up. But he really wanted to talk about racial realism theory. Racial realism having four themes. First, there's a, been no lineal progress in civil rights, you know, none. Second, there's been no progress in economics, right? Third, um, there is no real proof that our struggle is going to kill us. But fourth, we must struggle anyway. And that was critical race theory he was beginning to shape. Critical race theory that's collected in lots of different volumes, and this one being like a 1995 volume that he okay. and Kimberly Crenshaw edited, put together. In this book, 
he tells a story that makes all of this make sense. And I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't want to take up too much time on this story. But he tells a story about a, a older black woman who was marching with him in the, you know, in Harmony, Mississippi, a small Delta town. Um, they were uh, Harmony in the Mississippi Delta, where my mom is from. He was walking with Mrs. Biona McDonald, one of the organizers in a voting rights campaign. Walking up, he says, a dusty, unpaved road toward her home. Where do you find the courage to continue working for civil rights in the face of intimidation? She says. Derek, I'm an old woman. I live to harass white folks. <laughs> I live to harass white folks. Wow. So he's saying her goal wasn't she thought she could change the world. She didn't think she could change the permanent nature of anti-Black racism in America. But her goal was defiance. Her goal was the willingness mm -hmm. to use her body in defiance of racial tropes and stereotypes. And her hope came from defying the status quo. My In mind. critical race theory, these, these essayists, these lawyers were talking about how to understand race in America and how the legal system both participates in it, how it condones it by behaving as though there is some equality measure at work, the Baki case, for example, um, Baki, Ray Baki argued that he was being discriminated against as a white man in terms of admission to the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And Derek was like, actually, no. But the, but the law, the law pretended that you were equal to a white man. You're a black man. You were e pretending to be equal actually leads to injustice because there isn't a base of equality there. Am I, am I making sense? Am I being clear? Yeah. Right, because we're not starting at the same we're point. We're not starting at the same place. That's treat exactly everybody right. the same. That's yeah. Right. So the criticism right now, like the, the cleverness of the media and the cleverness of white supremacists to grab onto a term critical race theory, which is about law students coming to understand that justice is not blind to color. What they're actually talking about is the story of race in America. That's the bridge I wanted to walk. And what they don't want their children to know, what they don't want talked about in schools, what they don't want the fragile white child to know and learn is just how evil and insidious white supremacy is. And if we don't teach that to our children, we will only repeat the pattern. We will only repeat the pattern. So I'm wanting to say plainly to the college students listening, you must know the race story of America. You must understand the power of that race story. You must come to understand, no matter what your race is, that you are responding, you are responding to the whiteness story that creates a caste, Isabel Wilkerson would say, that creates a hierarchy, I would say, that causes um, white to go to Asian, to go to Hispanic, to go to black, to go to indigenous or flip that in terms of hierarchy. And what, and what the, the real worry is that the more people who know it, the more we'll disrupt it. Mm. Therefore, let's keep it off the table. That in a nutshell is what's at work here, is to have a fraught innocence in young white people that keeps them 
in supremacy mode that keeps them fearful of the other, that keeps their hearts bound in stone to the liberation that God is calling us to. Because what is true is that when white people get awoke about race for real, they get in the business of liberation. My shelf is full of books by black authors and white authors from Ibram Kendi to um, Carol Anderson on white rage to Robin DiAngelo on white um, fragility to Tendeka, a black writer on learning how to be white. We know what time it is. We know we don't want a world like this anymore. And we don't, we know that we have to push past this narrative to create a new story. But so the, the people who are saying anti-critical race theory are really saying anti-change. And they're really Ooh. saying anti-liberation. That's what they're really trying to do. Keep you innocent and in the dark and ignorant and participating in white supremacy systems that are not only going to wound your soul, but are going to wound the souls of all the people. Because in the end, there's one race, and that's called human. Mm. And God, our God, wants us all to be liberated and free. My Period. goodness. Oh, that's so good. I love how you couch it in the idea that these are stories. Um, and and by telling this anti-CRT story, they're really trying to, to tranquilize and numb yes. the, those meddling kids. They're that's trying right. to make sure they don't meddle. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they don't they want to squash, I will say, the holy imagination that I think yeah. God wires in to young adults. Young mm. adults are like, what the what the yeah, they're anti-hypocrisy, yeah, yeah. they're anti-injustice, um, they're That's for right. freedom. They want to be in churches where all their friends are welcome, queer folks, Muslim folks, Jewish folks. They are open to racial um mixing and playing and flourishing. And these anti-CRT people are misnaming a thing, but also wanting to squash the holy imagination of our future liberators. Oof, oof. Young people, you've got the power. You've got the agency. Got the power. And they're scared. They're scared of what you can do, um, even scared of your questions. That's right. Here's another question for you as as, sure. as we think about this through a spiritual lens. You know, the Bible has that well often quoted passage for our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against right. the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces in the hem- heavenly realms. Can you help us understand this anti-CRT crusade from a spiritual perspective? Absolutely, I can. And I'm going to pull up another scripture to go alongside it. Um, You know, it's a really short text in Ephesians 2.14 that says, um, uh, in one of my favorite translations, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that would divide us. He is our peace. Let me get back to my screen with you. He is our peace. Jesus is Jesus is sent into the world to help us to do battle with those powers and principalities, right? And, and I want to back up a little bit to talk about, to just talk about Jesus. I just got back from Israel as we're speaking. And to be in Israel, to be in Palestine, to look around at the people who Jesus, where from where Jesus comes, right? Who Jesus who comes from Galilee in the north, in Judea, um, in Nazareth in the north, which later was called Palestine. He is a brown African Semitic 
particular person through whom God chooses to come to heal the world. God could have come to Germany. God could have come to Australia, right? God could have come to Africa. But God came to Afro-Asia, to the middle of these two continents, to the cradle of civilization. God came into the world as a poor refugee, homeless person, fisher, I mean, carp, son of a carpenter, handyman, who is the one whom, through whom God chose to redeem the world, particular flesh, African Semitic flesh, brown marginalized outsider flesh, outside of the empire flesh. That's who God chose to inaugurate the reign of God through to help us to do battle with powers and principalities from the place of the margins, from the place of the edges, from a critique of empire and whiteness and classism. That's the particular flesh through whom God chose to bless the world. So theologically, white people don't, uh, stop saying you're you're Christian if you don't understand the place of the margin. Just stop it, call it something Mm. else. Call it empirism, Call, Mm. call it that. But Christian, the way of Jesus, before Constantine makes it the state religion and he and his mama Helena like dip and skip around making things look just like the empire, but church, this is a, an itinerant rabbi teaching the radicality of love as the way of God. Love, period, as the way of God. So I say, theologically about race, one, we've got to own the brownness of Jesus, the mestizaje of Jesus, our Catholic writers would say, the mestizo nature of the rabbi who became our savior. We have to own his multiculturalness, own his brownness, own his otherness, if we're gonna say we're Christian. Secondly, we have to own the power of his breaking down the wall, which is what I wanted to put that text there. Breaking down the wall of who's in, who's out, of who's loved, who's not, who's who deserves, who doesn't, breaking down the walls that racism created about who can have and who can have not. That's two. And three, we have to own his theology. His theology is love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love, period. And everything else is commentary. And if we don't understand, young people, the radicalness of that religion of love, they don't want you to know that either. This is not a religion of, you know, cast out the queers and cast out the women and cast out the blacks and put in the rich and put in the white and put in the straight. That's somebody else's religion, but that's not the religion of Jesus, son of Joseph, son of Mary. (laughs) I'm processing and chewing on it as you're speaking. Um, Even if, as we have to, to move the conversation forward, I could park on anything thing that you've said already. I'm wondering how you connect this to not just anti-CRT, but Christian nationalism. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you're talking about competing visions of a faith. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, I'm a psychologist of religion, right? I'm a psychologist and I understand that times of stress and strife cause us to be tribal. It, it's almost like a natural response. In my book, Fierce Love, uh, I have a chapter on this idea of tribalism. And so it's an understandable um, 
reaction, young people, to stick with your own kind, to quote, you know, <laughs> to quote West Side Story from Anita, stick with your own kind, right? Mm. But in fact, it's a false religion that this white nationalist movement is creating. And it's not new. It's white nationalist when, when Constantine makes it the state empire the state religion, I'm sorry. It's white nationalists when that religion begins to do missionary work and move around the globe and sort of conquer the globe in the name of God, in the name of Christ. It is it is bastardized, excuse me, young people, warped, thwarted, twisted, even in the, in the fourth century when it begins to move across the globe. So it isn't the religion of Jesus that is pursuing the Muslims and torturing them. That's the religion of Constantine. Right. Mm. It isn't the religion of Jesus that's fighting about, like, where does Jesus come from and where does the spirit come from? Are you kidding me? That's the religion of empire. It isn't the religion of Jesus that conquers uh, um, Europe and conquers America and claims it for the king who is also the emperor, who's also the pope, right, who's also in charge of the church. That's the religion of empire. White nationalism is the religion of empire. And mm. sadly, Christianity has been empired for for centuries it is it is the the national religion of the united states mm-hmm. is the religion that had me and jamar as three-fifths of a human that is not the religion of jesus so we have to have a hermeneutic y'all a lens of suspicion and critique when we look at any christian context that makes white straight gay rich somehow a blessing from God. When God actually, as James Cone would say, um, has a preference for the poor, a preference for those on the margins. That's clear. God picked Mary. God made Jesus. This this place of on the edge is where God shows up best. I hope that makes sense to y'all. I I really appreciate the the, the contrast of, of empire Christianity and the Christianity of Christ. I think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 there's a sign, there's a clear indication, red flags, you might say, yep. that a religion that in the name of Christ seeks earthly power. Yes. Right. Is probably captive to empire rather than captive to Christ. Absolutely. Um, I would love for you to speak to white people and white students mm-hmm. about their identity. Ooh, thank you for what that. have they believed in terms of a story and yeah. what must they believe in terms of a better story? That's so good. That's so good. Excuse me. I could turn and put my hand on a book by Tendeka called Learning to be White. Mm-hmm. I could re- refer you all also to, um, what is his name? Rice, Tim, Tim Wise, Tim Wise, mm-hmm. White Like Me. Young white people, you've been asked to drink, drink a Kool-Aid hmm. that's bitter. A Kool-Aid that is meant to make you think that the only way for you to be happy and thrive is to think you're better than other people. That your legacy, your inheritance, that you're entitled to a place in the society that has your knee on the neck of black people, that has your foot on the neck of the immigrant, 
that has your hands around the necks of queer folks. You don't want even to be that way, but you've been taught you have to be white enough. You have to pass as white in this nation in order to survive and thrive. And what I'm telling you is you, you were given sips of that Kool-Aid in your bottle and you were given sips of that Kool-Aid in the playground and you were given sips of that drink when you went to grammar school for the first time. And it was to protect you, to make sure you carried on the legacy of whiteness in America. And I know down in your soul, you know that that's so unjoyful and so unliberating and so not what you want to do. So I'm going to switch from the drink to the story to say why I love thinking about race as a story is because a story has a beginning and a middle and an end. And you can change that story anytime you want to by deciding for your own self who you want to be and whose you are and therefore who you should be. That liberation and an ethic of love and sharing resources and sharing power, you can be just like Jesus in the way you live your life by being curious about the other, by investigating their stories, by listening to music and reading books and seeing films and theater, putting yourself in like the cultural border, the border space where the lives and the textures and the texts of others informs your life and your texture, and you will be better for it. You will have so much more joy. You will have so much more fun. You have so much more of a rich life by acknowledging the incredible, beautiful diversity that God has created on this world for your enjoyment and your thriving and your surviving. You know, like get with the writers, like get with James Baldwin, they get with Gloria Naylor, get with Toni Morrison. I'm just using black folks right now, but like dip your toe in the well in the water of jazz, which is the only American classical music, right? This is the world you get to inhabit together. And then when you are my age, which is older than your professor, when you get to be my age, you can look back over the legacy you've created. You have taught your children the joy of multiracial, multi-ethnic life in this nation. You have taught your children that a good economy is one in which everyone makes a living wage, that the earth will thrive when we love, love her like a mother. You can teach your children the beauty and joy of walking with their brothers and sisters who are their brothers and sisters, not because they drank some white poison Kool-Aid, but because they looked at the diversity that God created as a gift for them. My opportunity for you to lean into is your white power gives you the opportunity to share it and to change the world with it. You can't tell me God isn't good because we just got that sermon for free. (laughs) (laughs) And it's transformative. Wow. Um, Truly beautiful, beautiful words. And I do invite people, if you need to pause this and just sit, with those words. Truly, this is spiritual work happening, even via video. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and thank you for that word. Um, As someone, how can someone who's been spiritually wounded 
by this anti-CRT crusade, this this mm -hmm. narrative about race, right. how can they begin to heal? Yeah, that's such an important question. And I think, you know, something else that's in our a story in our culture, y'all, is that asking for help is a sign of weakness. And um, it is not, I assure you. Um, my book, Fierce Love, uh, is the most naked, transparent. I will touch that book for a second. But it is a naked, transparent um, walk through my own childhood and adulthood. And when I was your age, the kinds of things I was wrestling with, the kinds of stories I was being imprisoned by or had been wounded by. I had been wounded by a bad touch story as a child. I had been wounded by the ongoing um, sexual predatorness of the person who wounded me, looking at me wrong, treating me like I was an object. I had been wounded by American racism, right? I had been wounded by what it means to be a girl child. And my dad's, who loves me to pieces, but his own kind of violent personality in some ways wounded us. Um, so what do you do? You you get help. You know, you 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 find a therapist or you find a coach or you find a community, a faith community or a community of um, spiritual practice, a yoga practice that gives you a chance to, you know, hover in the places where you're wounded and 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 feel the pain of the wound and and then focus some healing energy on the wounding like love on the wounding. You know, you cut yourself and you can pretend like you're not cut and then that thing's going to get infected and then pretty soon it's a whole other mess. But if you say, I've been cut here and it needs antibiotics, it needs clean water, it needs to be covered until it heals. Those are good metaphors for, you know, the antibiotic I'm going to say is God's love, right? The, the, the washing of the wound is airing it out in the light. This, this hurts me in, in a relationship with someone. And, and then there's time. So do not think you need to pretend that this nation doesn't wound you. This nation is a container. Um, my psych self, I'm saying a container, an environment in which we are wounded almost all of us, almost all of us every day. And if we don't acknowledge it, the wounded ones become wounders. Hurt people hurt people. So let's pay attention to our souls and our psyches and the microaggressions that can pile up and make us want to drink too much, make us want to eat too much, you know, make us want to work too much, make us want to sex too much, um, make us want to blot out the pain with behaviors that are not so helpful to us. So let's just think about making yourself, your story, something that needs to be tended to. You deserve that. You deserve to tend to it and be well. That is gorgeous. Um, truly soul filling hmm. that the words that you're saying. Um, I want to leave the people wanting more as I'm sure they do. And so tell us a little bit about your current work and also how people can keep up with you. Thank you. Um, Jamar, you know, uh, my church shut down like most churches did in COVID March of 2020. And then we had a fire in December of 2020. Yeah. And in the midst of those two, let's say fires, plus the fire mm -hmm. burning in America, you know, uh, the, all the, Mike Brown, it's today, as you and I are talking, is um, August 9, and 
Um, Mike Brown is killed on this day, you know, eight years mm-hmm. ago. Um, we think about all to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, all the ways that the nation has been traumatized uh, by race has actually uh, grown our movement of love and justice. There's a mm. place in which people have found the movement that is middle church. And I want to say to young people, no matter where you live, no matter where you live, you can become a part of our love period community by going to middlechurch.org. It's easy breezy peasy. You can join us or you can just decide on Sunday mornings at 11.45 Eastern Standard Time in your pajamas, you're gonna come get some good music and some good word. Um, Also on our page, in our site, is stuff like glory. Um, we, we believe in using like the world music in our sacred space. So mm. you can find beautiful music to listen to, to study by, to, to, to think about. There's resources on our page, anti-racist resources that is about anti-Asian, anti-Black, all of that stuff. We're, we are the queerest church led by a straight Black woman in America. We are just are. So you're welcome there no matter who you love and how you love. So that's a resource. Um, you can follow me in all the places at Rev Jackie, at Rev Jackie Lewis. Um, I'm on Twitter there and Insta there and Facebook there. And I'm always putting some stuff in the world to think about. And I would love to have engagement with you. Um, this book is a quick read and a lot of people read it on audio. So they run to it or they exercise to it and then they come back to it again. There's nine chapters of like spiritual practices to love yourself well first. So you can love your people well and then you can love the world. So it's three sections of how to love the world. And if you just Google my name, uh, Jackie Lewis, you'll find um, stuff I've written for, um, you know, uh, for Patreon, for HuffPost, um, all kinds of stuff. And my website is at Rev Jackie Lewis. A lot of resources there as well. So let's get in relationship with each other and see what we can do together. Y'all, it would be foolish at this point not to continue this conversation and access Reverend Jackie's wisdom somehow. It's literally at your fingertips or with the tap of a screen. You are so generous with the wisdom, the experience, the knowledge that God has given you, and you've blessed us. You've truly, truly blessed us. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us on Those Meddling Kids. Thank you so much. (laughs) Love it. Kids, keep remembering meddling ones. That's your spiritual calling is to get into some holy trouble and heal your own soul and heal the world. I'm counting on you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.